Hi, my name is Tara Kachaturoff, and I'm the host of Michigan Entrepreneur, where we feature businesses from startup to stellar. Today, I have as my special guest, Todd Palmer, who's the CEO of Extraordinary Advisors. Welcome to the program. Hi, good morning. How are you? Great, great. It's so great to have you back on the program today because we're going to talk about a really important topic, psychological safety. Yes. But before we jump into that, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and the clients that you serve? Well, again, thank you so much for having me back on. Um, uh, my name is Todd Palmer. I am the CEO and founder of Extraordinary Advisors, where I work with CEOs and their leadership teams teaching inside-out leadership under the premise that we can't lead others until we can first lead ourselves. Um, I spent 10 years being at when I was, I was a CEO for 25 years. In 10 of those years, I worked with a gentleman named Dr. Danny Friedland. And he wrote a great book called Leading Well From Within. And under his tutelage, I helped grow and scale my business to make the Inc. 5,000 six times in seven years. And it helped me really transition my leadership so that I realized that as the leader, I was the cause of and the solution to all of my problems versus having to say it's the economy, it's the employees, it's the marketplace. I realized that I had much more power in my role as the CEO than I ever realized with Dr. Friedland's help. Now I work with 24 CEOs around the globe, helping them with inside out leadership, as well as I run probably 25 in-person uh, CEO retreats over a one to two day period, doing some of this deep work, helping people get unstuck around what matters most to them so they can go out and build the life by design that they're seeking. And I know you do all those things because it's incredibly hard to get in touch with you to get an interview. Because <laughs> we're always <laughs> traveling nowadays. But it, I'm it, so it, is a, it is the, the, the blessing and the curse. It is. And, you know, we've known you, Todd, um, from when you were an Inc. 5, uh, an Inc. 500 um, uh, company. Um, we had you on several times in the past and also in your new role as a leadership coach um, traveling the world. So we've got to see you over the years and transitioning to your latest role. And today we're gonna to be talking about psychological safety in the workplace, which is a specialty area that you're working with organizations on. So to get us started, why don't you define that for us so we're all on the same page? And that's a great way to start too. Um, if you think about psychological safety, it became very popularized a few years ago in two categories. One was author named Amy Edmondson, she wrote a great book called The Fearless Organization, and she recognized and realized that people within an organization were often censoring themselves because they didn't feel safe with the leadership teams, even to the point where they would exit and leave an organization, increasing turnover and absenteeism because people did not feel psychologically safe. Throw that in with the work that Google did around Amy's work, and, and that's really the stuff I get to work on today because human beings at their core want four things. We want to be seen. We want to be heard. We want to be known and we want to be accepted by others. And when we are accepted and seen by others, what we do inside of our brains, I learned from Dr. Friedland, is that we ultimately end up accepting ourselves. We feel a disconnection in our society today, not only from the others within our lives, but also a disconnection from self because we don't feel accepted. So what I have found psychological safety does is it helps people feel accepted it breaks down the walls of disconnection between two parties, whether it's a CEO and their leadership team. And even I've seen it between parents and children's children or spouse or within spouses and within households. Ultimately, what it does is it creates a, a greater connection where we all walk around feeling like our more true, authentic selves because we are accepted by others, which allows us then to accept ourselves. 
You know, that's a really interesting point um, because um, how we, it kind of goes back to that thing, how we do anything is how we do everything. And if we're censoring ourselves to the world, we're really doing the same thing to ourselves. It's just, you know, boomeranging back on us. Um, that's fascinating. Um, and I see like it's kind of a, a dual um, benefit when we can have this psychological safety. And I really never, I never knew that. This is fascinating. So um, where does this disconnect first start? Like it has to start somewhere. And I don't think it's necessarily starting in the workplace, but um, is it at home? Is it at school? Where do we start learning these behaviors about keeping our mouth shut and not speaking up? Great question. Um, in my experience, I know I found that I so much from my household of origin, uh, I wanted to feel safe. I grew up in a, in a very um, interesting household. I grew up with the uh, father who was an alcoholic. And when we're in that environment, we don't, the world is not predictable. The world is very uh, uncertain. So in that space of the uncertainty, I, I modified and, and I showed up differently than maybe I authentically would if I had grown up with, with a father in, in a household where, where it was stable. Because ultimately what human beings want is we want to maintain homeostasis. When we maintain homeostasis and we have that, that, that sense of feeling safe, we, we can then show up as our true authentic selves, however that is. When we don't feel safe, then we modify. So I, at least for me and a lot of the CEOs that I work with, is their household of origin for whatever reason had a trauma attached to it. Might happen to tie into alcoholism. Other people talk about abuse. Other people talk about neglect. Um, nowadays, what, what I see people talking about, especially with their children, is the distraction of devices and, and how we don't connect in conversation. Uh, we, you know, to get our kids to come to dinner or to have dinner with us, everybody at the table is sitting around on their devices. And so what we've done is we've fostered a culture of disconnect, throw in the, the COVID-19 pandemic, where we really socially distanced and further disconnected from other people. There's, it's not just one, to answer your question from the perspective of it's a multiple multiple layer issue of why we have such disconnection in today's society. Yeah, and I, I, I really appreciate what you're saying there. And I'm even uh, just recently read something about Zoom again and the dangers of using Zoom to connect with people and how it really is disconnecting us um, biologically with our eyes and everything else going on. Um, it just it's it's everywhere. It's um, it's ubiquitous at this point. Uh, Right now, when you're looking at organizations, because you're you're dealing with um, you know large, small organizations, global organizations, what is the temperament out there right now? Um, are are organizations, from what you're seeing, really off the mark when it comes to psychological safety? Where do you see them? Maybe on a scale of uh, zero to a hundred, with a hundred being really healthy, and that organization that's really everybody's working together and it is open and safe. Where do you think most, where do you think the majority, you know, what's the temperature, what's the temperature out there basically? Well, with that, with that big scale of from zero to hundred, I would say most companies are landing somewhere between 30 and 50. I spent time yesterday in, in Cleveland wow. with the company and there was a lot of tension to begin our planning session. It's their annual planning session for their entire strategy for 2024. And there was a lot of tension because of, the, the people in the room don't know how to create psychological safety. So it's, it's not a matter of someone's right or someone's wrong or someone's good or someone's bad. We don't know how to create it. 
So as you said, I'm kind of hard to sometimes to get a hold of because I'm so busy because I'm teaching people how to create it. So I worked with the leader to create the space and creating the space. You know, once they see the technique, they're like, oh, that makes sense. Now it's, it's then, it's then untangling that chain of, of, you know, decades of how we communicate, you know, to, to create psychological safety, it's a really a three-step process. We have to validate someone, and people get all wrapped up in what does validation mean. That then we have to help them feel seen, heard, known, and accepted through the technique of validation combined with mirroring. And then we get to massive curiosity questions. What leaders really struggle with, just like parents really struggle with, is, well, I want to solve the problem. Well, if we recognize that creating a psychologically safe environment doesn't require me as the leader necessarily to solve the problem of the employee, but teaches them how to get to that root cause issue. They get that root cause issue stated, and now they start working on the root cause issue versus dealing with the, the systematic or the byproduct problem. That, that's really where we got to yesterday, that the real issue came from an employee who carried something from a previous employer into this new company and the, the owner had no idea that, well, you know, at my last company, we did this, or at my last company, I was treated like that. And, and, it, and it's in that carry forward of that traumatic experience for that employee that now the new company has to deal with. Well, what if we are able to create that space where we can share that? What if we're able to create that space where the, the CEO or the department lead or the team lead doesn't necessarily have to solve the problem? What they do instead is teach that employee how to solve the problem themselves, which gives them a sense of ownership. Then, and only then, when we own our problems, then we are able to take that responsibility to then fix them. Yeah, so there's like, you know, there's like a twofold thing going on here. I mean, it's recognizing the new behavior that has to be put into place, but it's also the stepping back from the ego and, and owning what we, our stuff. Yes. And those are two big, really pretty big concepts for people to absorb. Can you speak a little more about that? Well, to me, that goes to what is your culture? If, if, you're, if you have a culture of accountability and responsibility, it goes, goes a whole lot easier once the technique is in place. And if you adopt a philosophy as an organization, we, we want people to be seen, heard, known, and accepted. The benefits to the business are, are very measurable. They, they increase employee engagement. And when employees are engaged, what you do in that, in that pod of, let's say, 10 employees is you actually get more interaction and more dialogue. From there comes better solves to the business problems, not to the personal problem. But if someone's censored because they feel like they're going to get shot down by the boss and it's going to be a yes, but, well, when I say yes, but, I negate what I just said yes to, yet versus, you know, that's really an interesting, I want to validate you, Tara. That really is an interesting way of putting that. I'd love to learn more about it. Tell me more. Tell me more. Where is that coming from? Help me understand. How would you apply that? We have limited resources. How would we work around that? When that psychological safety is created, we get we get more engagement, better ideas, reduced turnover and absenteeism, and it really calls forth that courage to show up as your true authentic self. When you show up as your true authentic self, that's a company you want to stay at. And I'll tell you another thing about it. It's basically we're teaching them how to be coaches because, as you know, I mean, we're both come from the coaching profession, and that's like the coaching model is, um, you know, validating, exploring curiosity, but not um, commenting, shooting down, putting in, you know, 
restrictions to it. It's all about possibility thinking. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I really, I really love all these things that you're you're talking about. It's like I'm so excited for the future of work because if we can get there and get these companies up from the 30 to 50 that you think they're on the scale right now to you know 70 to 80, I can't even imagine what it'd be like. People will want to return to the office, right? <laughs> Well, and what if they took that into their households? What if they took it to their families? You know, I've got stories upon stories of, of I learned this at the office and I took it home to my family and I helped my son, I helped my daughter, I helped my spouse. So it, this is not just a, a solution for the for the work world. This is a solution for the entire world. And people get so wrapped up, well, when I validate somebody, I must be agreeing with them. No, when you validate somebody, what you're doing is you're recognizing, I see you. I heard what you said. And what, and it, what we have to give up around pride and ego that you mentioned earlier is we don't have to own it that it makes sense to us. It makes sense to you that you see the world that way. It makes sense to you that that was your history, your experience. That makes sense to you. I don't have to own that. And then once we get through that, we're able to recognize that when I, when I validate you, I'm not agreeing with you and I'm not solving your problem and nobody has to be right the right. brain relaxes and that just in and of itself, people could just would start with that validation technique. That's where so much change could occur. I'll tell you, this will take back people like hours of your life in terms of reducing your stress because you're not going in there to, you know, gulp down a cortisol cocktail. You know, this is going to be a very different kind of experience where it's more of a dopamine uh, extension rather than, you know, something that's putting in, you into even more trauma. I mean, I just see so many wonderful things in this. Um, moving through this to um, talking a little bit more about uh, this because you're working with all different kinds of companies from service-based to manufacturing and so on, um, are there any industries or sectors that you see in our economy that struggle more with implementing these kinds of things or have, you know, are even lower on the scale when you're looking at these types of things in the workplace? You know, it, it, it's, I haven't noticed any sectors per se, whether it's manufacturing, service-based, mm -hmm. IT, but what I have noticed is, you know, the, the, reluctance of of the owner of the the leader the ceo the entrepreneur to to embrace this because their imposter syndrome flares up and they feel like i do have to have all the answers to all the problems i do have to be able to to handle all these things and so their pride and ego will often come in there and block because someone will bring them a plan like oh i know the solution to that and if you think about what often makes an entrepreneur successful is their ability to solve problems so for them to, to put a pin in that from a, a tactical perspective, but from a humanistic perspective, for them to start every conversation with an employee of, what if I don't know all the facts? What if this isn't the real issue? Because if we suspend that the, what the issue is, you know, if an employee says, um, we got, we've got, you know, I've had this happen with my CEOs. I've got a money problem. Okay, great. Money problem is very clear. I don't, either I don't have enough or this or that. Um, what, what we often, once we dig into it is, we actually have a human problem. We have a human being uh, the, as the CEO, for example, in one case, who really struggled to tell people no. So this department wanted to buy something and the CFO couldn't tell them no. And so they would spend more money than they had, which created a money problem. But the, really the issue wasn't a profitability issue. It was a boundary issue. And that boundary issue came from the top. And they couldn't, they couldn't 
have those crucial conversations because they wanted to be liked so much. And if I tell people no, the story I tell myself is I will be unlikable. And if I'm unlikable, they will leave. And if they leave, the business is in trouble. And they would doom loop that all the way through versus, you know what, here are the core values of the organization. One of the core values is we have to be a profit first organization, which means we have to have enough in reserve and we have to have enough set aside for the rainy days. And if we're going to spend money, here's how we spend money. And here's how the CFO is going to hold the team accountable. And here's how I, as the CEO, will hold the CFO accountable. And when I want to spend money as the CEO, here's how the CFO is going to hold me accountable to the core values of the organization. That goes a whole lot smarter. But then that gets pride and ego out of the way. And and that's really where the the trip-ups become versus just simply executing a, a sound budget. And I'll tell you, it's a lot easier because it's not about you anymore. It, you're always thinking about the whole team. It's a very, it just gets all that stress off of you because if the light's not on you, it's on everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I love that approach. I mean, even talking about it, I can feel the stress release from me as you're <laughs> explaining it all because it, it really is just an easier way to go to work in the morning. You know what I mean? It's so yeah, much easier. And, well, and, and some people say, well, why don't people change? You know, I just wrote an article about this, pushed it out yesterday about, um, Two of my favorite authors, Mark Manson, Lisa Leahy. One talks about Lisa Leahy talks about the immunity to change, why people don't change. And Manson talks about the law of avoidance, how we don't we avoid doing the things we know we should do because our pride and ego get in the way. And in what what people really get I found universal across regardless of whatever sector is the comfort and the discomfort. And people will stay in uncomfortable circumstances because it's the norm. Employers will tolerate underperforming employees because it's the norm, and something's be- someone's better than nothing. Employees will stay in companies that maybe don't treat them well because you know it's the devil I know versus the devil I don't know. But if we embrace the thoughts around changing what we will and won't accept, how we will or will not show up, and tie them back to our personal core values at home or the core values of the organization at the office then that's really where I think transformative change is going to take place, moving that number from 30 to 50 back to that 70 you mentioned a few minutes ago. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Hey, so as we as we move on through our discussion of psychological safety, which is fantastic, I'm really enjoying it, um, can you tell us about some common misconceptions uh, people have about psychological safety in the workplace? I mean, I think some people think like, oh, I have to become a parent, now I'm going to have all these kids, so to speak, you know, to deal with. Right, um, right. You know, where does it stop? What are like two or three misconceptions that you have seen? Sure. Well, first misconception I've seen is uh, creating a psychologically safe environment is creating a a bunch of therapy conversations. This isn't therapy. A therapist, if they they do it correctly, will use some of the techniques for sure, but most therapists will dispense advice and most therapists, you know, or some psychotherapists can dispense medication. So that's not what this is about. This is about creating that safe space for people to be seen, heard, known, and accepted. It's a human need and you work with human beings. So that's the first thing is that it's not therapy. The second big misconception is that, you know, people will people will not want to buy into it. And as the leader, then if I if I say, hey, we're going to create a psychologically safe environment, that that I'm now somehow in a less than position. I'm somehow now in a weaker position because I've now given up what in their minds they often think is that that ultimate par- power uh, of problem solving. At the end of the day, leaders lead in three ways. We sell an idea, we tell an idea, or we collaborate in an idea. And this falls in the category of collaboration, but you don't always need to collaborate to solve every problem. Sometimes as the entrepreneur, as the leader, as the CEO, if you know the right direction the business needs to go in, 
you sometimes just need to tell people. If we understand the motivations of an entrepreneur, a CEO, often they're motivated by upside, profitability, and that big home run, which is the exact opposite of what an employee is motivated by. An employee typically is motivated by reliability, stability, and dependability of the organization to make sure their basic baseline economic needs are met, throw in psychological safety, then you've got really something going together. So those are the couple of misconceptions that come to mind as you ask the question. All right. Um, yeah, that, that that's really interesting. Um, so when you're, um, you know, you're dealing with these organizations and you're helping them make psychologically, uh, you know, safe environments for their employees, what kinds of outcomes have you seen as a result? I know this stuff takes time. It's not going to be like, let's start today and you'll see results tomorrow. But what have you seen over time? What's some of the feedback from some of your clientele? Well, the biggest piece of feedback is from the employees, they don't feel they don't feel minimized. They don't feel like a cog in the machine. They feel like they are part of something bigger than themselves. From the, the entrepreneurs, the feedback I've gotten is that they can actually show up and be vulnerable, which is really hard for them to do. It's often hard for most people to, to show up and be vulnerable. When, when we're authentic and we're in transparency and vulnerability, then we're dealing with people on a very real level. For an entrepreneur to stand up in front of the room saying, you know, here, here are the, we did this yesterday, here, here are some of the struggles for the business and I'd love to get your ideas. And they stop versus I'd love to get your ideas, but first let me tell you mine. That makes a big difference. Like who goes, who shares? Um, at the, but at the end of the day, if we focus on what does the organization really need? And every organization, regardless of sector or industry, needs people. And these people, if they have a sense of ownership to the problems, a sense of ownership to the community, and a sense of participation, then it goes a whole lot better. Now, what I have seen is this sometimes makes people uncomfortable. And so people will leave an organization. That's honestly okay. Because if you've got 10 people in the organization going to the left and one person feeling awkward and want to maintain the status quo and sticking to the right, then they should probably go find another place to work. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, when we think about bringing these kinds of things into the workplace and they're brought in usually formalized in some sort of a, uh, a system or a plan or a program to introduce it to employees, how do they create the objectives around this? How do they create the um, measurable outcomes? Because, you know, we can't manage what we can't measure. Mm -hmm. How do you measure this? How are you doing this? Is it surveys? Is it how, interviews? How are you doing this? When you come into an organization, then you're ch checking the Delta, you know, months later. How do you, how so do you work that? I, I look at like two or three different things. First thing I look at is if, if especially if they've had absenteeism or turnover, has that mm -hmm. been reduced? Okay. That's the, that's the easiest thing from a human right. capital perspective, especially if the CEO is saying, I've lost some really good people, people based upon how I showed up. That, that is key. The, the, the other part of it is, is, you know, it's, and it's such a, it's such a classic thing, but you know, did the revenue go up? You know, did, did revenue rise? Did the profits increase? What, what I've found before people were doing psychological safety is they give a lot of lip service to things. And then, they would say say one thing in January, and by March they stopped doing it. Well, and I would come in, and we would talk about it. And well, yeah, I said that, but I meant this. I said that, but I meant what? When we create a psychologically safe environment, we say what we mean, and we mean what we say. And so, if we if we want to grow the organization in a certain sector, and we're committed to that, 
and all the plans are around it. And the accountabilities are there when we run into the inevitable hiccups, bumps, and, and, and derailments. It's that psychological safe conversation, knowing that I'm seen, heard, known, and accepted, that I can say, hey, boss, this is the real issue. The issue is you. And they say it in a respectful <laughs> way. Then what that does is it, it'll it create – what psychological safety often does for people is it creates an awareness they didn't previously have. So now we can't pretend anymore. It removes the artificial harmony that often exists where everybody's saying how great we are, even though revenue is flat. God, I love that term, artificial harmony. That is a writer downer. <laughs> I've seen that in so many organizations. It's unbelievable. Yes. Wow, that's a good one, artificial harmony. Um, so when we're talking about um, psychological safety, and you know, you have measures that are in place. Are you um, are you doing programs with organizations where you're going in there, helping them set up, and you're training the executives, and then are you coming back throughout the year and checking in with the team? How how do you do some of these? I know they're probably all custom. They are all custom. Yeah. Um, what are so some of arrangements you have with yeah? So so typically, what I do is with my CEO specifically is I speak with them 30 minutes every week. And in those oh, 30 minutes, we, we have a pulse check-in of where okay. are we against the goals, where are we against the objectives, and anything else that they want to discuss. With the teams, the leadership teams I work with, what I'll typically do is I'll come in and do a half-day workshop, and we'll lay out what the structure looks like. We'll clear some of that artificial harmony out. We'll have some crucial conversations that I'll facilitate in the room, and I'll model that behavior. Then what I'll do with those teams is I'll check back in with them on a quarterly basis to see how things are going. But what I often, what I really like about it is everybody gets my number. Everybody gets my email. So what I'll do in those times is I'll hear from the employees. I just had this happen with a client of mine down in Phoenix where I did mm -hmm. the, the workshop. Some really big breakthroughs take place. <clears throat> and then the, the, the youngest executive, I think she's under 30, reached out to me. Can you talk? She goes, I have this really big issue. Uh, two of my key employees have resigned because I intimidate them and they don't like me. And, da, da, da. and she was very emotionally heated around it. We, we, I said, well, let's go back to the model. When you see them, this was on a Friday. She goes, I'll see them on Monday for their exit interviews. And in those exit interviews, she showed up differently. She showed up with massive curiosity versus defensiveness. She showed up wanting to validate their experiences. And actually, one of the employees rescinded their resignation. That's fantastic. Because she <laughs> chose fantastic. to show up differently. Wow. Love that. Yeah. And the I, person says, well, I, I just didn't think you cared. I never thought you'd change the story. Everybody has a story they tell themselves. So if my story doesn't match with your story and we're talking like this, it doesn't work. But when we come a little bit closer, we have a little bit more connection. We're not going to connect on everything. That's okay. But a person feels like, well, I didn't know you cared. I didn't know you were willing to change. I didn't know you'd even gone through this training. I, I, I Yeah, I, I really want to be here because the reality is, and you know this better than most, people don't quit companies. They quit, they quit bosses. Yeah. And it's so sad. It is. <laughs> it's so sad when people stand in the way of other people's success and happiness in life. Um, another a question, a quick question before we uh, wrap up. Um, how can organizations ensure that the psychological safety programs that they put in place, how how can they sustain them for the long term? What are, what are some what's the type of advice you give them or how do you help them sustain? Well, first and foremost, I would say if you can make it part of your core values and your culture points, it matters quite a bit. Because then when you're not adhering to it, even if you're the CEO, someone can point to the, the, the document on the wall that say, hey, we're a psychologically safe organization. Here's the criteria of that. And we're not showing up that way. Or as leadership team, we're not showing up that way. Or boss, 
you're not showing up that way. That makes a great deal. You have to be committed to it. You just, uh, you know, they're, they're, this is how I look at it. If you're committed, you do it at all costs. If you're interested in it, you only do it when it's convenient. And a lot of companies are only interested in it. But if you take a look, I mean, Google is committed to it. Look at the, the work they're doing there. And if you look at, you know, if you want to be a healthy organization where people have sustainable careers, you've got longevity, there, there is no, again, Amy Edmondson talks about this, there's no greater measurement than if we commit to creating a psychological safe environment, we bring in an outside resource to teach it, the resource comes back and checks in with it, the resource is available for check-ins with the team because it takes a long time to learn it. The techniques are easy to grasp, it's changing the behaviors that take a lot more time. And it's a repeat and reinforcement that, that's necessary. This doesn't change overnight. Absolutely. Well, um, my final question to you, um, I've really enjoyed this conversation immensely. My final question to you, um, Todd Palmer, is what's your advice to entrepreneurs? You know, my, especially going into 2024 is how can you take the uncertainty and make it certain? You have things in the economy, you have things in the world right now. We've got it. We're in an election year. We hear all different things about recessions and things like that. But what can you control? Where are you both the cause of and the solution to the problems you face? And how can you have ownership and awareness of it? And if we first and foremost as an entrepreneur recognize we got into entrepreneurship because typically we have more of a rugged individualist mindset. We are, we are not wired typically to be employees. Then how do we embrace that? How do we fold in outside resources like coaches and mentors uh, groups like an EO or a YPO to support us around that, to recognize that we don't have to do entrepreneurship alone. So many people want to do entrepreneurship alone is I would challenge you not to do that. Create a tribe around you, get the support mechanisms around you because I found, you know, I started in 1997. This can be an incredibly rewarding career, um, but it, it, to do it alone is incredibly difficult. All right. Well, thank you so much for your advice, Todd Palmer, CEO of Extraordinary Advisors. If you'd like more information about our program, please visit us at michigananteprenuretv.com. Please join me again in the future when I interview another enterprising entrepreneur. Until then, wishing you the best of business. Mm -hmm.